famous stories in all the Bible, probably the world, happened right behind where I'm standing in this place called Azekah. It's the story of David and Goliath. There were two armies gathered on either side of the Valley of Elah, the people of God and the Philistines. And the Philistines had this, this giant. He was coming out and every day challenging Israel to send a warrior to battle. And Israel had nothing to compete. The king, King Saul, was afraid. All the soldiers were afraid. And ultimately, the story boils down to the fact that a, a little kid, no training, couldn't fit in any armor, came out and challenged Goliath with nothing but a stone and his faith that God was bigger. I know it sounds too good to be true, a lot like a fairy tale, but it's history. It happened here where I'm standing, in this valley, the Valley of Elah. off this weekend, I'm going to list uh, some of the most popular movies over the last several years, and I want you to look for the common denominator in all of these movies. They have something that they share, all right? In the last several years, there were two Thor movies. There was Thor and then Thor The Dark World. There were two X-Men movies, X-Men First Class and X-Men Days of Future Past. There were two, and how could we have done without these? There were two Captain America movies, The First Avenger and The Winter Soldier. There was that unbelievably Shakespearean classic, The Avengers, where all the superheroes got together. There was uh, The Amazing Spider-Man 1 and 2, and there was Guardians of the Galaxy. All right, what do they all have in common? They're all Marvel comics. They're all Marvel comics. That's what they are. And how many of you... Saw at least one of those movies? Raise your hand. Okay, a lot of us, yeah. Who would have thought, right? Comic book characters aren't just for kids. In fact, though kids love them, the reality is they're often more relevant and more appropriate in content for adults. There's a lot for adults to get from it and enjoy. Well, the same is true with the Old Testament story that we're looking at this weekend. We're looking at David and Goliath, and so many times people dismiss this as, well, that was a great kid's story, but there's not much for adults. You'd be absolutely wrong. And often, because we've heard the story so often, even those who really aren't a part of a church culture or a religious setting have heard of David and Goliath. They know about that. And we've heard about it so much that we don't look for the deeper meanings. We don't take deeper dives into it. But I have to tell you, when I have the privilege of going to Ezekiel, the setting for this story, the Valley of Elah, and I'm there, all of a sudden it becomes an extremely real thing for me. I take a deeper dive spiritually in it, and I hope that you'll join me in the look this weekend. Now, before we get into the spiritual impact of the story, I want to kind of give you a, an overview of the story. So let's first of all look at the place, the place where it happened, Azekah, 
the Valley of Elah. Look at how the Bible sets up the context in 1 Samuel 17, verses 1 through 3. Now the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Socha in Judah. They pitched camp at Ephes Demum between Socha and Ezekah. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the Valley of Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with the valley, the Valley of Elah between them. And so you get the context, and from the picture we have there, we're kind of looking over the valley of Elah, and in the far distance were the two hills that they were on. And then they would come down in the valley and line up against each other. And I have to tell you, it's, it's easier to read about climbing these hills than it is to actually climb them. Trust me. I don't know if you saw it in the intro video, but our team was coming up, and it was, you couldn't see where they were coming from. It was a fairly steep hill, and we've... Look, we've taken a lot of people to Israel. We've only lost two or three on this hill. And, uh, I mean, it's a pretty big hill. And when you think of how the soldiers would have to encamp on these hills and then come down to fight the battle and then go up, it kind of makes it more real for you. In fact, for me, it takes it out of fairy tale status. When, when you read a comic book or you listen to a fairy tale, you know they're kind of making up a world that doesn't really exist. Things can happen in those worlds that can't happen in ours. But... But when you go to this, you realize that, whoa, this story's not a fairy tale. This happened in a real place, in real time, with real people. And so those things that are beyond our comprehension that happened, happened for real. It makes a big difference. So that's the place. Now, let's take an overview and look at the people. The people who were involved in this story. First of all, Goliath, obviously, was one of the characters. And I'm going to do something different. I'm going to actually read what the Bible says about who this guy was. And I'm going to ask you to kind of imagine him in your mind. 1 Samuel 17, I'll begin with verse 4. A champion named Goliath, a champion. He was a proven warrior. He was a guy who won war after war for his people, the Philistines. He was a champion. He was the lead guy. He was from Gath, and he came out of the Philistine camp. So he came down that hill into the valley, and he was over nine feet tall. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. Now, are you trying to picture him in your mind? Are you seeing him? No, you're not. I'm going to ask Goliath to come out because we need to get a view of this guy. Our creative team made a replica of Goliath. And I want you to know, this is in full likeness. We know because we have a Polaroid that was shot of Goliath in the day. (laughs) This is what he looked like. But he was over nine feet tall, anywhere from nine feet 11, nine feet six. We made ours nine and a half feet tall. And I mean, I'm seven foot six, so you see how big this guy is, right? (laughs) He's, I mean, he's huge. This is the guy. And, And that That armor, that scaled armor he was wearing that weighed 5,000 shekels. Now, a lot of times you just read, buy stuff and don't think about it. But if you calculate that up, that's 125 pounds of armor. Now, I I work with a trainer, a physical trainer at times, um, because I want to look like Charles Atlas someday or someone big like that. And and, uh, he has me wear a weight vest sometimes to work out in. I'll have to, you know, do exercises in it and do stairs in it and do these kind of things. Most I've ever worn is around 81 pounds. And I fell to my knees, fell on my face, and he had to pick me up. I mean, it it wasn't that bad, but it was very heavy. 125 pounds of armor. This guy was a stud. He was mammoth and strong. The passage goes on. On his legs, he wore bronze greaves. Nothing new to you. You wear greaves all the time, right? That's shin armor. 
He had a bronze javelin slung on his back, his spear shaft. Now, this is the, the shaft of his spear, the part that the hand would go around. The way the biblical story writer tells it is, it was like a weaver's rod. Uh, uh, in the olden days when they would weave things, they had a loom. And they would have these huge bars, these rods that the, the things would function on. I mean, you can't even get your hand around this thing. And this is what his spear shaft was like. He had to, he had to hold this thing. And then it says, and I love this, the iron point, you know, that's the part that kills you, you know, the, 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 the point weighed 600 shekels, 15 pounds. Okay, so here's what would happen if I had that spear, boom, into my foot, I mean, because 15 pounds. If I threw it, I couldn't even get it to the first row, you'd be safe. I mean, this thing is huge. And then it goes on and says, his shield bearer went ahead of him. They had guys that kind of served their interest when they were on the uh, battlefield. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel. Now imagine this mammoth of a man who was a proven warrior. They knew that he had been successful wherever he went. And he yelled to the armies of Israel. So he's in the valley and they're encamped up on this hill. And he says, why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? Are you not the servants of Saul? Instead of all the soldiers fighting all the soldiers, you choose a man and have him come down to me. If he's able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you'll become our subjects and serve us. That doesn't sound like a good deal. Who's going to go down and take this guy out? I mean, seriously, it's just dumb. Then the Philistine said, this day I defy the ranks of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. Now this is an important part. He came down and said, hey, we don't have to go to war, whole army against whole army. Just send one guy down to represent your people, your God, and let's go at it, mano a mano. And no one came. And then he said, is it because you're God's puny? You say you have a great God. You say you have the one God. You say you have the God that created the world. You say you have a God that parted the Red Sea. Well, come on. If your God's that big, then come down and prove it by fighting me. And when they wouldn't, he said, I defy you. He defied the people of Israel. And he did this for 40 days, every morning and every evening mocking the God of Israel and mocking God's people. That's Goliath. You might want to invite him over for Thanksgiving dinner. Great guy. Then there were, was Saul and, and all the soldiers of Israel, the army of Israel. As we look at the people, as we get the lay of the land. I'm just going to give you two verses that kind of describe them in this story. Verse Samuel 17, 11, and then verse 24. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul, the king... And all the Israelites, the warriors, the soldiers, were dismayed and terrified. When the Israelites saw the man, they all ran from him in great fear. How much confidence would this give you if the king ran and hid? All the soldiers, your Navy SEALs and your special ops people, ran and hid. Make you kind of really confident? No. And that's exactly what's going on. But let me give you just a note that will help put it in perspective it kind of makes sense that they were afraid not only because the guy was nearly 10 feet tall but Israel didn't have the right equipment to fight this guy I mean they didn't, they didn't have tanks or atom bombs <laughs> okay maybe not that but they really didn't even have swords and spears 
They were an agrarian culture. The Philistines were a more progressive culture. They had the, the better technology. They had learned to work with iron, and they were great iron workers, had huge blacksmiths, and they were able to forge all kinds of modern equipment in the day. Swords and, and shields and spears were modern equipment, especially when made out of iron. But Israel was an agrarian society. They didn't have that. And the Philistines were shutting them out from this modern technology. In fact, you can read it on your own. But in 1 Samuel 13, just four chapters before this story, the Bible tells us that not a blacksmith could be found in the whole land of Israel. Because the Philistines had said, otherwise the Hebrews will make swords and spears. They had the technology. They weren't going to share it. So Israel couldn't make their own swords and shields. That's where they were. And then it says, so on the day of the battle, not a soldier with Saul, the king, and Jonathan, his son, not one soldier had a sword or a spear in his hand, only Saul and his son Jonathan had them. So, so it makes sense that the soldiers wouldn't want to go down and face a 10-foot guy, especially in light of the fact that he had all the latest technology and they didn't have any. The, the only one who can be faulted maybe a little bit here as it relates to equipment is Saul or his son Jonathan because they at least had a sword or a spear, but it wouldn't have been anything like this guy's. So you've got to put yourself in the story and say, would I go down and accept the challenge? Probably not. Well, then there's David. If we're going to look at all the people, we have to look at David. In 1 Samuel 17, I'll let the Bible once again give us his picture. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite named Jesse, who was from Bethlehem in Judah. Jesse had eight sons, and in Saul's time, by this time it's saying, he was old and well advanced in years. Jesse was an old guy. Jesse's three oldest sons, the first three out of eight, had followed Saul to war. The firstborn was Eliab, Eliab, the second Abinadab, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest, so the first three were soldiers with Saul. The three oldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's sheep at Bethlehem, of course, because his dad was sending him to the battlefield to give bread to his brothers and to get reports and then come back, and then he was a shepherd in the wilderness portions uh, where he lived. And one time when he was there giving his brother's bread, this guy comes down into the valley and starts shouting, you're God's puny. If your God was as big as you say, claim he is, then you'd come down and fight me. You're God's puny. And as this guy would defy them, David was just aghast. And look what the Bible says he says. David asked the man standing near him, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of living God? Now, it's interesting because a shepherd boy comes. He's not even a part of the action. He's not even supposed to be there, really. He comes, and he sees this giant walk down and challenge the people of God and defy their God, and he's going, awesome. What does the person get who's going to kill him? And he goes, I mean, this guy's defying God. Who is this to defy our God? The God who parts the Red Sea and the God who created the world. Who is he? All the while, King Saul's going, you know, and the soldiers. The shepherd boy wasn't at all bothered by his size or his equipment or, or his background. He was saying, he's defying God. What do we get for taking him down? He just saw it in an entirely different light. So those are the people. That brings us to the plot. The plot is the storyline, right? And you can read the story on your own, all of 1 Samuel 17, but, but let, let me just give it to you in a sentence. Here's the plot. Against all odds, the least likely takes down the most likely. That's the whole plot of this story. 
the least likely takes down the most likely. David took down Goliath, and by the way, take, David took down Goliath with a stone. And this is really important. Took him down with a stone. Why did he take him down with a stone? How come not sword and spear? How come not armor? Well, obviously, only Saul and Jonathan had that. Not even all the other soldiers had that. He was a shepherd. No way a shepherd has any of those things. He didn't have access. In fact, a shepherd in the day was quite poor. And he was alone in the wilderness. The only thing a shepherd had to protect his sheep, the only thing a shepherd would have had to protect himself, other than the staff made out of wood, which was short, was a stone. This was the weapon. And it was free. They were all around. It's a very stony environment. And so he had it. And if you think about it, being a shepherd in the wilderness, all you have is sheep and no one else. You're in the middle of nowhere. It's a boring place. What else do you have to do but throw stones at stuff? We've done that, right? Have you ever been left alone in a certain place or been with someone? And what do you do? Uh, first one to hit the sign. You know, and he, I mean, it's a way to pass the time. And this guy, it was his only means of protection. So he's saying, this is all I've got. I better get good at it. And of course, they would make a sling. And so a leather strap of some kind or a way to do it. And they would get good at, at throwing the stone with the sling. It's all he had. Why did David, the least likely, take down the most likely Goliath with a stone? Because it's all he had. It's all he knew. And as we discover in the story, it's all he needed. I mean, Saul tried to give him his armor, but it didn't fit, and he didn't know how to manage it. And so he just went out, and the Bible tells us he picked up five stones. Now, that's interesting, because you have to, you have to worry about the five stone thing a little bit. When I first read he got five stones, I said, aha, he seems like he has faith, but he also has a little bit of doubt. What if I miss with the first stone? I know, I'll pick up five. That's what you think, but I don't think that's it at all. This guy doesn't register on the, on the unbelief scale at all. I think he knew he was going to take Goliath out with one stone, but what you might not know is Goliath had four brothers. This guy wasn't just afraid, uh, not afraid of Goliath. He was going to go after all the brothers too. He was going to take down all the champions of the day. I can't prove it, but I'm right. <laughs> okay, it's <laughs> just it's kind of a thought. I don't know. But here, I mean, the stone, that's how he won this victory. Against all odds, the least likely takes down the most likely. It's true that King Saul and his army didn't have all the right equipment to fight Goliath. They weren't 10 feet tall and they didn't have the modern technology. That is true. But David didn't have the right equipment either. That's not an excuse. Here's where David was different from King Saul and his army. David trusted God, not his own ability. David trusted God, not his equipment. David believed that God gave him everything he needed for success, so if all God gave him was a stone, that's all he needed. That's not how King Saul and the soldiers looked at it. And by the way, if I can be really, really honest, it's not how we look at it. Here's how we look at it. I'd be glad to fight Goliath if God made me 10 feet tall. I'd be glad to fight Goliath if... I had all of his training and all of his background and all of his equipment and all of his technology. I'd be glad to do that if I had been given better opportunities and better experiences and better. I'd be glad to do it, but God didn't give me those things, so I'm not doing it. That's how we look at it. You know how we tend to look at life? Through the lens of all the things we don't have. But not David. David said, hey, God gave me a stone. 
a stone must be enough. And so he went out and fought with a stone. It's an unbelievable deal. Here's the point of the story. We've seen the place, we've seen the people, we've seen the plot, but, but if you don't get to the point, then you're, then you're not going to really get benefit from the story. And here's the point. It's not who we are or what we have, but who we trust that really matters. It's not who we are. Um, Goliath was a giant. He loses. It's not what we have. He had all the latest technology, all of it. He loses. So Saul and the soldiers had no excuse because this whole thing's not built upon who we are and what we have. It's built upon who we trust. And David trusted God. If God's big enough to part the Red Sea, then God's big enough to take down a giant. Look at Proverbs chapter 20, verse 7. It just speaks it in real words. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. I mean, some trust in spears and some trust in armor and some trust in chariots and some trust in horses and some trust in size, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Some trust in the provisions, others in the provider. David ultimately trusted God and nothing else. And this explains how he was willing to walk into that valley and towards that giant that everyone else in Israel was hiding from, including the king. He was able to do it because David trusted God. While all the others were focused on the giant, he was focused on God. David knew that he was safer fighting Goliath with God than hiding with the others without God. And here's the problem. You want to know what the problem in our lives is? You want to know what the problem in our world is? You want to know why darkness is prevailing in spite of the fact that we want light? Do you know why, why we don't measure up to what we're supposed to be? It all boils down to this problem that King Saul and the soldiers have in this story versus David. The problem is that David is the exception and not the rule. David's the exception, not the rule. The truth is, every single person who genuinely knows God and knows God's truth should have no problem walking down a hill into a valley with a stone to take down Goliath because they have a God that's bigger than Goliath. But can we just be honest with each other a little bit? We're supposed to be the exception. Our faith is supposed to make us different. Our faith is supposed to give us access to promises and power from God that other people don't experience. But that's not the rule. That's the exception. There are some people I know who are like David. They're the exception, not the rule. And that's a huge problem. Because you see, this explains why God's enemies are winning in our world. This explains why darkness is prevailing. It's because God's people, like Saul and like the soldiers, are so often unwilling to stand up for God, unwilling to do whatever it takes to fight for him. They choose to sit on the sidelines. Too many of God's people believe that the world is stronger than it is. Saul and the soldiers bought the press on this guy. Nothing can take him down. We can't take him down. Look at him. He's a specimen. Can I put it in more contemporary terminology? Even God can't sink the Titanic. 
We think the world's stronger than what it is. We, we buy it that it's better than we are. We, we tend to, as Saul and the soldiers, fear the loss of temporary things more than the loss of God himself. The world's winning. Darkness is prevailing because God's people often feel inferior to the world. They feel small in comparison to the giant. They, they feel inferior to the world instead of feeling like children of a superior God. And this is where David's so cool. He goes, what do you get for taking this guy down? Who is he to defy God? He saw himself as a child of a superior God. He did not see himself inferior to Goliath. Unfortunately, he's the exception, not the rule. Too often, God's people, those who know God and claim his truth, talk about how big their problems are. I'm in that camp, you're in that camp. We talk about how big our problems are rather than talking about how big our God is. David was the exception, not the rule. Too often, God's people talk about faith in God, but they don't really trust him. That's the exception. They wrongly believe that it's safer to do nothing which is why those who do something are the exception and not the rule. And you know what the result of being like Saul and the soldiers is ultimately in our lives? We aren't willing to go all in for God's kingdom. We're not to go, willing to go all in on serving. We're not willing to go all in on giving. We're not willing to go all in on staking our whole life on the truth and the value of eternity. No, we're going to hold on to our security here in the temporary. And as a result... We don't get to experience the promises and power of his kingdom. That's an exception, but not the rule. This was true in Ezekiel in the Valley of Elah. It's been true throughout history, and if I could just be so bold to say, it's true today. The reason so few of us are experiencing God's promises and power in our lives, the reason so few are responding to the good news of God's truth in our world, is because living for God is an exception instead of a rule among God's people. You think about it. People like the words of truth. I've never met anyone who said, I don't like the sound of God loving the whole world and sending his son so if we believe on him we could have everlasting life. I've never met anyone who said, I don't like the sound of he came to give us life and life to the full. They like the sound of the words. Here's the problem. They don't see the reality of the words in the lives of those who are speaking them. If King Saul comes and talks to you about how powerful his God is and then he hides from Goliath, what do you think about that God? The same thing Goliath did. He must be puny. He must be a fairy tale. He must not be real. And that's what's going on in our world today. Do you know what will change our lives? What will change our lives ultimately is when we come to the place where we trust God above everything else. More than our ability, more than our opportunities, more than our technology, more than our size, more than our potential, more than our experience, more than our education. We trust him more than our money. We trust him over everything else. That'll change our world. That'll change us. You, you know, changing your schedule a little bit to add church to it once in a while isn't going to change your life. But trusting God more than everything else will. Do you know what's going to change our world ultimately? And all of us want our world to change. Our world's kind of messed up and it's pretty obvious. Our world will change when, like David, we become the exception instead of the rule. 
When we trust God to such a degree that we can walk courageously toward our giants through the storms of life and in full obedience to everything he's called us to be and do. Our world will change when we really come to believe that it's not safer to do nothing, to stay silent, to remain in hiding. It's safer to obey God even when standing in front of a giant who's swinging his humongous sword at you. That's when the world will change. By faith, David flipped the world right side up. He flipped the world right side up because up until the time David walked into the Valley of Elah, the Philistine army was celebrating and Israel was hiding. And then David threw a stone. And then all of a sudden, Israel celebrating and running after the Philistines and the Philistines are running and trying to hide from them. What happened? Think about it. One kid, David, trusted God enough to do something. He was the exception, not the rule. And I believe the same thing can happen today. God's just waiting for someone to step out of the crowd. It could be you. Let me just give you the truth and the application and try and weave it into your lives and let the story become what it can in your life. Here's the truth. There is nothing that God can't do. There is nothing that God can't do with or through a person fully surrendered to trusting him. Nothing. Could Saul have taken down Goliath? Yeah. There's nothing that God can't and won't do through a person who's fully surrendered to trusting him. The problem was Saul didn't. Could he have used any one of the soldiers, the, the more likely? Yeah. The problem is they didn't trust him. So who was it that stepped out of the crowd? <laughs> a shepherd boy. <laughs> and all he had was a stone. And it was enough. It's a big deal. Jesus made this clear. Our purpose here at Northridge Church, our mission is to wake the world up to Jesus. And let me just wake you up a little bit this weekend to something Jesus said. His disciples, like King Saul and the soldiers, had failed to stand up to their obstacle, to their challenge, their giant. They had failed in something pretty significant. And so they asked him, why couldn't we do this? And look what Jesus says in Matthew 17, 20. Because you have so little faith. I tell you the truth, this is Jesus. If you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. He didn't say, you'll have the technology to move a mountain, you'll have the resources to move the mountain, you'll have the personnel to move the mountain. He said, if you fully surrender to trusting God, even just with a mustard seed of faith, you can move a mountain. You can take down Goliath. We feel so ripped off in this world. We're not 10 feet tall. We don't have all the modern equipment. We don't have all the resources. Boy, if we had those things, our life could be something special. No, they couldn't. Because we don't need those things. All we need is what God put in our hands. Something as small as a stone. And if we fully surrender that to trusting God, our world will be flipped upside down. Let me give you the application. If you want to live your life to the fullest, if you want to 
If you want to live lives of significance, then we need to fully surrender to trusting God, like David did. If you want to waste your life like Saul, like the soldiers, if you want to live a story that's far below your potential, that's easy. Just regret that you're not 10 feet tall and don't have all the right stuff. But if you want to live life, fully surrender to trusting God. I mean, Paul says it in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. He says, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Fully surrender everything about you and all that you have. Be holy and pleasing to God. This is true worship. Don't conform any longer to the pattern of this world. What's the pattern of this world? To be like Saul and the soldiers. To be claiming something that you don't really believe. But instead be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Fully surrender to trusting God and what will happen? Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is. It's good, pleasing, and perfect. Who is the person who demonstrated that God's will is better than any other thing in all the world in the story of David and Goliath? Was it Saul? No. Was it soldiers? No. Was it Goliath? No. Who was it? David. Because he fully surrendered to trusting God. And if we're going to experience what David did, we have to follow him instead of following Saul and the others. And so there are four vital questions that erupted in my life as I was really moving through this story. And they're wrecking me these days, wrecking me in a way that's helping me to reevaluate where I'm at in my own journey. And I think they can help you. Four vital questions. Here's the first one. Who is your God? Hey, it's an important thing to handle. Who is your God? Goliath has his gods. And they weren't real. They were idols. They were made with hands. Certainly didn't serve his purpose. But Saul and the soldiers of Israel... They claim to have the same God David did. Who is your God? If you ask them, they say, our God is the one who spoke the universe into existence. He made everything out of, from nothing. He can provide where there is no provision. That's who our God is. Who's your God? Our God is the God who can part the Red Sea. Our God is the God who can raise the dead. Our God is the God who can do anything. It might be impossible for man, but it's not impossible for God. That's who our God is. That's what King Saul would have said. That's what the soldiers would have said. That's what David would have said. That's what we would say, many of us. Who's your God? That God. So let me ask you, is your God bigger than Goliath? Why aren't you willing to go down in the valley and fight him? Your God is the one who parted the Red Sea, took down Pharaoh? Goliath's nothing. Well, which leads me to the second question. Once you know who your God is, then you have to ask this question. Are you willing to trust him? You see, Saul could say who his God was. Saul just wasn't willing to trust that his God was really that. David had no problem. He goes, I'm just a shepherd boy. I got myself a stone. But my God took nothing and created the universe, and he can take this stone, and he can take Goliath down. He was willing to walk into the valley because he knew who his God was, and he was willing to trust him. Let me ask you, do you know who your God is? Are you really willing to trust him? There's a third question that kind of wrecks me in this story. And it's the question, what's your stone? I've never really thought about that before. What's your stone? What's your stone? What's your stone? Until I started analyzing this story several years back. What's your stone? 
You know the stone. The stone is all David had. It's what he had. He was a shepherd boy. And so it was his instrument for protection of the sheep and himself. It's what he had. And so he had to develop the skill and the experience and the and passion for it. So he started doing it. And he created that little deal. And he started, you know, with his little sling. Your stone is what God has given you in gifts and abilities and experiences and opportunities. That's your stone. It's what he's put in your hand. It's what he's made available to you. That's your stone. So many of us are wishing we had what other people have. Oh, I wish I had their bank account. I wish I had their profession. I wish I had their height. I wish I had their health. I wish I had their technology. I wish I had their equipment. I wish I had their opportunities. I wish I had their potential. I wish I had their family backgrounds. I wish I had, I wish I had, I wish I had, I wish I had. David didn't wish he had anything. David just said, I have a stone. What's your stone? Turned out, you know, when I was a younger man that I realized um, I, I had a couple of strong gifts and then a ton of weaknesses, right? I think it's def definitive of all of us. And one of my gifts was, and this is going to sound funny, but it's true, I could talk. It was weird. You know, most women say lots of words, most men say few, I say more than most women, you know, that kind of thing. I could talk. And I got it from my mom. <laughs> you think I can talk, you know? Um, she can make a 15-minute story, a three-and-a-half-hour experience. I mean, my mom can talk. And I'm not making fun of her. I'm just like her. I mean, I can talk. And so that was one of the stones God gave me. And when he changed my life, I realized, wow, God gave me a stone. He gave me the ability to talk. I guess I'll, I guess I'll throw that stone for him. I started just getting up and talking about Jesus because I could talk. My talks don't change lives. But God does. My talks without God would be meaningless air fillers. But my talks with God can change lives for eternity What's your stone? And then the fourth question, are you willing to throw it? Too many of us aren't willing to throw it. Saul had a crown, and he had a sword, and he wasn't willing to use it. David threw his stone. There in Azekah, in the valley of Elah, two kingdoms were in conflict, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world. And like today... In that day, the world was winning because God's people were trusting everything but God himself. But David turned the whole thing right side up by absolutely trusting God, so much so that he put his whole life on the line. And as a result, he changed his world and he changed the world. I believe that God is calling every single one of us to be just like David, the exception, not the rule. In fact, the Bible tells us he's created us to be unique, a unique people, an exceptional people, a different people. God's people are supposed to be different because God makes us different. And God's calling us to be different. But if we're going to be different, then we have to start taking some steps. You see, the problem with Saul and the soldiers is they didn't take the steps down into the valley to fight their Goliath. 
David did. We have to take some steps. What are those steps? Here's the first step. If we're going to really live lives of significance, then we need to make the choice to trust God. We need to make the choice to trust God. It, it starts there. This is where we say, who is my God? Am I willing to trust him? And I believe, even for those of you who call yourself God's people, I think most of you, and I fit into this category a lot as well, I'm not setting myself apart. I think most of us are more like Saul than we are David. No wonder we're not experiencing his promises. No wonder nothing's happening in our lives. We need to make the choice to trust him. I mean, really trust him to come off the hill and into the valley and to fight our Goliath. But some of us here have never even ever experienced God in our lives. You'll never experience God in your life until you trust him. Do you realize that without trusting God, the sum of your life comes from the total of your choices? And I'm going to tell you what, when you add up my choices, the sum is failure. And that's yours too. For all have sinned and come short of God's glory. And the wages of our sin is death. I mean, we're going to live and die and it's not going to matter. But God so loved us, he sent Jesus. The sum of Jesus' life is eternity. The sum of Jesus' life is God's pleasure. Well done. The sum of Jesus' life is magnificent. And do you realize, because Jesus died when he didn't deserve to die, that's what we deserved, and was buried and rose again, do you realize now, when we trust Jesus the sum of our lives isn't the sum of our choices, it's the sum of his choices. We can have life and life to the full, but we have to make the choice to trust him. That's why Acts 2.21 says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Saul didn't, the soldiers didn't, David did. How about you? Before I just give you the last action steps, I'm going to invite you to pray with me just for a minute. And so would you just, just for a moment, bow your heads with me in a word of prayer. And as we bow in prayer, if you've never taken a step to let Jesus give you new life, why not pray with me now? I'm going to pray, and you can take these words and make them the expression of your heart to God. You don't have to say it out loud, just in your heart. Just, just say, God, I'm calling on your name today like David did yesterday. I need you. The sum of my life adds up to nothing but the sum of your life adds up to eternity. I give you my sin, my failure, my choices. I put my faith, Jesus, in your death, burial, and resurrection. Save me. In Jesus' name, amen. If you just prayed, I, I just really encourage you, let us know. We put together information about next steps that you can take in your relationship with God and to get it to you, we just need to know you prayed with me. So in our live services, we give you these programs and we put this connection card in it. It's easy to take out. You fill it out so we can get the stuff to you. And you check that circle at the bottom that says you prayed to receive Jesus. And then as you're leaving, just throw it in the boxes at every exit and we'll do the rest. And if you're watching online, hit the what next button and we'll do the same for you. And I really want to encourage each and every one of you hearing this. Look, at if, if you're just starting out in your faith or you're restarting, 
checkout starting point. Uh, they're, they're groups that build a foundation for you to understand truth and God in a new way. We're starting some new groups soon, and in the lobbies of all four of our campuses, you can find out about it or find out about it online. I hope that you'll sign up for that. But Now, uh, if, if we're going to take steps to being more like David than Saul, then once we make the choice to trust God, then you know what we have to do? We have to start throwing our stone. Whatever it is and wherever we are, we have to throw our stone. I mean, whatever your gifts, your abilities, your experiences, your opportunities, I mean, you need to start throwing those for God, coming off the hill and coming down in the valley and throwing those for God. You really do have to. And you all have one. You can read 1 Corinthians 12, verses 4 through 7 on your own. God's given all kinds of different gifts. We all have different opportunities, but he's given them for the common good. He wants to use them to make a difference. He's given you a stone. You've got to start throwing it. And you can't say, yeah, but, you know, I'm not in a good place right now. Really? David was in a great place? Start throwing your stone. And then one last thought. Look at Galatians chapter 6, verse 9. Let us not become weary in doing good. It's so easy to become weary in doing good. Do you know how many times David threw a stone? I mean, at a bear, at a lion, you know, at a sign, at a car, at a window. By the way, they didn't have cars, they didn't have windows, they didn't have metal signs. That's, you know. He was just, he just kept throwing a stone until one day it landed in the right place and took down the right thing. Let's not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we'll reap a harvest if we do not give up. Here's the last step. Don't stop throwing your stone no matter what the world throws at you. Saul did some pretty cool stuff as king, and then he messed up some, but Goliath showed up. And all of a sudden, because the world threw something at him that was too big, he stopped throwing his stone. David kept throwing it. Don't let the junk of this world keep you from throwing your stone. Don't let anything stop you from serving him, from giving to him, from trusting him, from, from believing in him. Because one day, it will result in something that you value more than anything else. And because the stone idea is so important to me and to us, I th- our, our, team, our team has gotten a stone for every single one of you at all of our campuses. And so I don't want you to be surprised when you're walking out of the church when they start throwing stones at you. I mean, it's going to be it's an amazing deal. No, actually, they're not going to throw them, but they're going to hand them to you. And I hope that you'll take that stone and you'll put it somewhere where you can remember that it's the least likely not the most likely. It's not who you are or what you are, it's who you trust. Who is your God? Are you willing to trust him? What's your stone? Are you willing to throw it? And I hope you'll keep that stone where you can remember we're supposed to be the exception, not the rule. Are you the exception or the rule? And I want you to be aware that we believe that we need to provide as many opportunities as we can for you to grow spiritually. Next weekend is a huge weekend for opportunities. You saw it in the Northridge News. We have a sacred marriage conference coming this coming week. Look, life's busy, life's tough, but marriage is tougher. And I really want to encourage you. I mean, don't pass up opportunities like this. 
It's a sacred marriage conference. It's a way that you can start applying God's truth to your important relationship, most important relationship. I hope you do it. It's Friday and Saturday. You can sign up online. The screen shows you how as well. Next Sunday here at Plymouth, for King and Country, a very, very popular worship band is going to be leading worship in our services, as Evan told you earlier. And, and then Sunday night, because they only get to do a couple of songs in our services, they're doing a full concert here. And you can get tickets and invite your friend. I hope you will. Next Sunday night is going to be a great weekend. Friends, get your stone and start throwing it for Jesus. So glad you were here. See you next time.